Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. Sorry I missed last week, I just had family coming through and there was no way that I could have recorded this without trying to rush through it or something, and I don't want to ever do that. I like taking my time and just having these chilled, laid-back conversations with all of you, so uh, hopefully that's cool that I missed a week, it's probably going to happen now and then, but anyway, let's jump in and see what's been going on. First up, over on Floatplane, Kirko has a large 32-inch Sony Trinitron CRT that gets a wobbly picture when it rains. Once the rain stops, the TV goes back to normal. Um, they like the TV, but they've never worked on CRTs and they don't really want to, and they don't know anyone around their area of Australia who could work on them, and even if they did, it'd probably cost way more than they paid for the TV to fix it. So their thoughts are to either keep using it until it goes, and then try to source another one, but they don't seem to be as available as they were, and they'd also like to see how future scalar technology looks over and maybe get one of those and move to OLED TVs. So you're going to have a lot of decisions that you have to make here. Um, first and foremost, you know, working on CRTs is dangerous. Uh, don't listen to anybody who says it isn't because it is. Whereas, you know, working on a Super Nintendo is not dangerous unless you do something incredibly stupid like mod it in your bathtub. Uh, so that that's definitely something you're going to want to keep in mind. However, you can take the steps to do this safely. So, you know, one of the things you could probably do is just unbolt the back plastic cover slide it out. You probably want a friend over just to make sure the TV doesn't wobble. And then just kind of take a bright flashlight, you know, not your cell phone light, like a really bright mag light or something and look in there and see if you see something that is very noticeable. You know, are the capacitors leaking all over the motherboard? Is the neck board half hanging off or something like that? And you don't have to be a, a tech to really get it. You just need to be slightly nerdy to understand what might look off in this scenario. You know, and I know it's hard too, because factory flux can very often look exactly like leaked capacitors. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's kind of out of your control, but snap some pictures and go from there. But if you really like the TV and the insides of it look fine and there's no burn in and it's nice and bright, you don't need to crank the brightness up. You might be able to do something like try to have somebody discharge it or you yourself try to discharge it once again, that's by far the most dangerous part. Everything else after that, as long as it's not plugged into the wall, is pretty safe. I mean, I would say as safe as working on any other electronics device, but if you're able to discharge it, you should be able to take that board out and then just mail it to somebody to have it recapped. Um, and that, that could very well fix the issue, and that would extend the length of your CRT. And yeah, it's expensive, but you've just bought yourself quite a long time, provided the tube's in good shape, the neck board, et cetera, et cetera. Now, on the flip side, getting 4K scaling tech in an OLED TV is going to cost so much more. Now, obviously, you could use it for modern and retro. You know, you'll probably watch it every day, just flipping on and watching TV shows. So that's you know, something to consider. But I think if I were you, the only thing I wouldn't do is nothing. Even if what you end up doing is just having a think about it, right? Even if just listening to this podcast is thinking about it, that's cool. But I, would, I wouldn't just do nothing because you could just end up accidentally wasting a perfectly good CRT. Like what if it's something super easy? Like there's a connector that's coming off and whenever the moisture gets in from a rainstorm, you know, that's a little bit of corrosion. So you pull the connector off, you clean it, you put it back on and you're done, right? Or what if you open it up and all the capacitors have leaked all across the motherboard and it was going to die in a week anyway? At least you know. And once again, as if the tube is in good shape, you might be able to find a replacement board for it that's already been refurbished. So... I would just have a really, 
you know, a serious think with yourself about, do you really love CRTs? Is it something that you want to continue to use? Because, you know, when I do these experiments with people, and I always choose non-nerds to do these experiments with, I have people come in and tell me, all right, you know, what looks better for an old TV show and an old game? Everybody always picks the CRT for older content, not newer content, but older stuff, anything interlaced or any kind of retro retro game, really. But then when I ask them, okay, well, how many of you would deal with rolling a CRT out and plugging it in? Mostly people say no. They like the experience. They like coming over my house and doing it. So that's kind of something you have to think. You know, do you want to keep using your CRT? Obviously I do, but a lot of people don't, and that's fine. And if that's the case, yeah, then go ahead. Just kind of, you know, maybe even try to sell it and and, uh, do it honestly. Just, hey, you know, this is what happens every time it rains. I'm looking to get it to a CRT enthusiast. You know, give me 50 bucks and come pick it up yourself or something uh, or free or whatever, you know. But I would just kind of think about what your overall goals are, why, and then what kind of effort you want to put into this. I know it's a really long explanation, but I just kind of wanted to add a lot of context to this because I'm sure there's a lot of other people listening that are in similar scenarios. So I'm not just talking to you, Kirko. I'm kind of talking to everybody on this one. And if obviously, you know, if you have any other questions or, or any thoughts on it, just ask again and we'll follow up next week. Okay, now I'm going to move over to Patreon, and I'm going to start with the newest questions first, just because it's been a couple weeks. Maybe there's something I need to see in this order, or or maybe I'm about to make it weird. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But uh, Seacon said they're using a mister with a direct video out option for HDMI to 240p without having a separate I.O. board. With this setup, should they be worried about not having a fan or heat sink on their mister? Do I have any suggestions for low-cost cases or fan boards for a bare-bones setup like this? Basically, Mr. and RAM with no I.O. or USB boards. So that's kind of an interesting question because heat is always a problem with any electronics. But if you don't have any case on it at all and you're running it open air, there's a lot less chance of heat buildup because the heat gets to move around. So is this just sitting on your desk? If so, you know, you might be able to buy like a $10 multimeter that comes with a thermal probe so you could actually see what the chip is running at. You could just, you know, halfway through a gaming session, pause the game, stick the thermal probe right on it and just read it right there and see. Or if you have one of those fancy wireless thermometer things, those are awesome. I love those. But um, I've wanted to get a FLIR for a long time, but I just can't justify the 300 bucks or something. But anyway, um, you could just kind of check yourself to see. But if your Mr. Setup, even, you know, stripped down just using the DE10 is in a shelf somewhere where there isn't much airflow, that in itself is enough to say maybe you would want it. And, you know, while as long as you run electronic components within their directed tolerances, that should be fine. Cooler is always going to be a little bit better. So what I would say is check out any of the low cost cases or things that Uh, the cheapest cases that just have a fan assembly built in, or you could do something cool. Like there's that uh, mini ITX board that is just, it's basically just a housing or just a way to mount the DE10. And then you could stick it in a mini ITX computer case. If you already have one of those, that might be kind of neat. You could check out uh, retro castle store. They have some without the IO board, but with the case, I believe Mr. Add-ons has those as well, but you know, they're still not, not dirt cheap and they're not supposed to be these are quality things uh well i mean the uh the mini itx bare bones one is dirt cheap but then you have to get another case around it so i would kind of just my suggestion would say 
fan in a heatsink is never a bad thing for something like that. I don't know if you would need to run out and get it every time, but you know, it, it probably is worth investing in. Next, do I know if the direct video out option is compatible with a GunCon 2 where some kind of composite input is typically required? It should be, but then you would have to have a breakout on the sync line in order for that to work. So you would have to go from, um, and you that is one of the rare times where you can use a Y cable. And I just want to be incredibly annoyingly clear about this. I'm not talking about sending video, or in this case, sync to your display and then another display. I'm talking about sending it to a gun con and a display. And the reason for that is because of the termination and it doesn't put as much of a load on it. Basically, for lack of a better description, it sniffs the signal, not pulls it. Actual EEs are rolling their eyes and want to punch me in the face for saying it, but it is actually a good analogy for people that don't have an electrical engineering degree. So that would be the only tricky part of that is you would have to, because remember, you don't need composite video. It just needs sync in order to synchronize where the gun is on screen versus when you pull the trigger and stuff like that. So you could do it, but you would need to wire up something a little bit custom or get one of those breakout boards. I believe um, I, I believe there are IO boards you could buy that have that broken out specifically for this. They plug right into the snack port. Um, and I think I think the PlayStation ones have that. So you might wanna check Mr. Add-on's website for it or, uh, or any of the other ones on there and kind of see what would work best for you. Next up, Tony Shadwick said, I mentioned I have a couple of candy cabs. They're working on a project now that they hope to open up and share with others, but they were wondering if I could help them with some measurements. How far is the top of the control panel from the floor at the front and back where it meets the cabinet? About 25 and a quarter inches. I just measured it for you when I started reading your question. Uh, and it's this, it's flat, so it's the same in the front as it is in the back. Next, how much does the monitor lay back? Meaning it's not perfectly perpendicular to you it's angled backwards a little bit um, and I'm not sure but I think if you found the the specs online they might be able to give you an idea but it's definitely tilted back a little bit um, they want to compare against their converted Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cab um, so you know uh, I'm not really sure what your project is but there should be detailed measurements of these and by the way I should have mentioned the cab that I measured was the Astro City the Sega Astro City um, I also have a Sammy Video World, which is definitely different, totally different size and shape, but it is also angled. But I would just kind of check out different arcade websites to see the specs and let me know if there's anything else I could help out with. Belmont said, last night they recapped the elusive one-chip SNES and had a very positive first-time experience with SMD-style capacitors. They've seen so many methods to remove them. Hot tweezers, cutting, dual-wielding soldering irons, and people sometimes just twist them right off. In my experience, what's the safest way to remove them? Time isn't an issue, but preservation of the pads is. Well, the my least favorite version is twisting them off. Experts absolutely can do it because they, they could kind of feel around and see when the pads are wiggling and when the cap itself is coming off, but beginner and intermediate, no, and I don't do it. So, and I'm, I would consider myself intermediate. I definitely wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I would definitely not do it that way. I have before, and I ended up breaking one pad out of many, so it wasn't too bad, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, what I've ended up doing quite a bit is I take tweezers and one soldering iron and I solder one half of them. I try to get it heated up and then I pull up just that side and not a lot. I'm not putting a lot of force. I'm not ripping anything. I'm just putting enough pressure so that when the solder connection melts, it lifts up 
And then I kind of take the soldering iron away and I just let it sit for a minute. Maybe I blow on it or something because uh, you don't want to drop it back down when it's still hot or it'll just reconnect. And then I go on the other side and do that. And that is super easy unless it's so close to another cap or another component that you can't get your soldering iron in there. And I've tried using solder tweezers before, but I bought a cheap junk version and it was way harder than just using a soldering iron. Um, I've had a few people tell me that the good soldering iron tweezers are very expensive and you might actually be better off just getting two decent, um, I forgot the name, Kestor, whatever, Kesker, whatever those soldering stations I've been using. A couple of people said it's cheaper just to get two of those and to push one on each side. Um, but I don't, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I think it's always really going to depend on the layout of the caps and where everything else is around it. So if there's space, one soldering iron and just doing one side at a time is cool. Um, it, worst comes to worst, you could be very carefully cut it. Uh, but that just, you know, there's so much that can go wrong. So I don't know, you know, other people have had really good luck with those cheap tweezers though. So you could try those, but the one lesson that I've learned over and over and over again is if you cheap out on tools, you might end up wasting not only so much time, but more money on broken stuff than you would have if you just bought the right equipment. I destroyed two Genesis motherboards because of a low quality desoldering iron. And once I spent the $7 more on the better one, I just, I, I wanted the smaller one. I didn't have the space, but that's all it took. And I was desoldering like a champ. So I don't know. I would try... I would try the method that I suggested first. And if you find yourself in a situation with a lot of caps that are too close together, kind of go from there. And if there's any experts that are listening, uh, please chime in. Cruz, Voltar, whoever, you know, if you have any extra tips, definitely. But I think not twisting and not cutting for beginners and intermediate is definitely a good idea. And the, you know, the slight pressure with adding heat to one side at a time is, is a good way to start at least. Next up, Dude Dudson has a Dreamcast with a broken red video pin in the AV port. They'd attempt to fix it themselves, but desoldering the AV or serial ports seems like a pretty difficult task, and they're not about to ruin their Dreamcast. Do I know any repair services that might take this on? They even have a non-functioning Dreamcast board with a donor AV port. Um, any expert modder should be able to handle this without a problem. People that are doing things like high-level SMD chip replacement uh, you know, and it's kind of hard too because a lot of people talk the talk and show pretty good pictures, but there's also been cases of people taking Voltar's pictures and using it for their own as if it was their work, and then people send their consoles over, and what comes back is usually a nightmare. So it's really hard. What I would suggest is talk to anybody else in any of the retro communities that you use or that you that you hang out in and see who they use, and kind of go from there. Um, you know, if you're in the East Coast of the U.S., let me know. If not, then there's tons of good people around the world. And, you know, when I just a, a quick aside here, when I give these cautions about bad modders, most are very, very good. It's just that the bad ones really stand out and have destroyed and continue to destroy consoles. So, you know, it's always good to go in there with a bit of caution, but most people are good or honest. So, you know, I've definitely seen a bunch of modders that are like, oh, no, I've done hundreds of this mod, but I've only done one or two of that. 
And I'm not sure I'd be comfortable doing that for a customer. So, you know, honesty is always a good thing. And hopefully there's other people, uh, wherever circles you hang out in that have a good moderator that could do this stuff. But yeah, desoldering things like that is hard because you could practice yourself, but stuff like hot air guns, if you hold it too close, too long, you could warp the board. If it's a multi-layer board like the Dreamcast, you could cause other issues. So I, I do think you're doing the right thing by exercising some caution but I think if you just find any decent modder that has the correct tools and has done something like that before, they should be able to do it for you. David Griffith wanted to follow up about their last question regarding whether they should or shouldn't do an internal Xbox HDMI mod. And they got the impression that my recommendation today might not be the same in the future when retro-focused scalers with HDMI inputs come out. Interested to hear my thoughts. For sake of argument, let's nix composite from the conversation altogether. What do I think the best solution for right now is and thinking ahead? So right now, what I would say, the best solution, in my opinion, is probably the newest adapter from the Behar brothers that just came out. I haven't written it up yet, so hopefully I will get that posted on RetroRGB before this comes up. But right now, that will get you component video, HDMI, composite video, digital audio, and analog audio. Obviously, you can't use composite at the same time as you're using 480p, but it'll work with any 480i stuff. So that's, that is definitely what I think the best solution for now is, because if you need to just plug it into a TV or stream with it, you have HDMI, and you have all of the analog outputs for everything else that you do. So, and I think it's 70 or $75. So I think that's the best overall for now. Um, the other one that I really liked was the Chimeric Systems one, which I'm not sure if that's in stock, and the one from Electron Shepard is also good. You could just plug all that stuff right in, and it'll just work with HDMI out, but the Behar Brothers one will get you all of the outputs. Now, <clears throat> let's just say, let's fast forward, let's be very, very uh, conservative with this and say, let's fast forward two years and assume that there are more than one HDMI input-based scalers out there that'll work well with retro. What would my answer be then? And that is when you would have to decide if you still want to use composite video or not. I know you said, let's forget about that in the conversation, but that would be my only point two years from now. Uh, if you said yes, then I would probably still say the Behar Brothers box for all those reasons, even though I would actually be telling you in most cases that you'd probably want to take component video to the scaler, not the HDMI out of that one. Uh, however, a couple of years from now, if you wanted my answer and you, no analog output was necessary, I would definitely say the internal only because you're getting a true digital to digital signal. So a one-to-one -one recreation of digitally how the audio and video is generated into a scaler that's designed to recognize what those are. This isn't a movie. This isn't a DVD player that's already deinterlaced 480i content. This is an Xbox running at native 480p. I know it supports other resolutions, but it's mostly going to be 480p. So that would be my answer a couple of years from now, but there's also price involved. So it, when I say this, by the way, there's no shade to anybody here, except maybe Eon, but you know, you have these adapters that are like 75 bucks, which are about the same or which are cheaper than the internal HDMI mod. So that's really when you need to decide about quality. 
if Xbox is your favorite console and you just want the best possible quality, you're going to spend a lot more to get that internal mod, both the cost of the mod and to either pay somebody to do it or to take the time to do it yourself, but you're going to get the best. However, if you asked two years from now, like, is it going to be a huge difference between like a Behar Brothers adapter and, you know, in this or not, it's not massive. It's not like the difference between composite and RGB. It's, it's more like the difference between a one chip SNES and then a one chip that's had the bypass done to it. You'll get a noticeable in- increase in sharpness and less interference, but how many people would actually notice that? That that's kind of the difference. So, you know, I hope when I explain this stuff, I don't ever want to come out as if I'm saying, you know, internal mods are too expensive. It's that's not it at all. It's just it's kind of like the same question of I want to get a stereo, what should I get? And there are definitely people out there that's like, if you don't spend $100,000 a speaker, then you know you shouldn't even listen to music. And that's if that's their opinion, that's fine. I wish for one day I could live in a world where that was even a possibility for me. But that's, you know, the point is there are people where every little bit of quality is very important to them and they have the time and money in order to get that. But there's also, most of us just want something that doesn't suck. Unfortunately, there's also a large group of people that don't care if it sucks. They just want to turn it on and see flashing lights. That's a bit frustrating. But so I think the the best answer to your question is just that get any of the solutions that don't suck. And there's a lot for the Xbox and get what I personally would get what works best for you now. Probably the Behar Brothers one and then see what comes out later on. And if you end up getting one of these crazy 4K scalers that's in the works, maybe just hooking it up with component video is going to be more than enough for you and you won't need to go that extra mile. Or maybe you're going to get multiple Xboxes, so you'll like the fact that you could just plug into whichever one you're at. Or maybe a year from now you're going to decide, hey, Xbox still is my favorite console and I want that extra 1%, 5%, whatever it is, difference. But for me personally, my suggestion to you would be take a serious look at the Brayhar Brothers box they just came out with. Um, I will leave a link directly to their store just in case I don't have time to get the post up. But uh, yeah, I think that's going to solve all of your problems for today and possibly for tomorrow as well. Looks like Oliver Claire had a bunch of questions. Um, I might need to chop up these answers because I'm still sick and my throat's still killing me. So if I manage to get through part of it and like my answer uh, and screw up the second half, I'll have to do that awful jump cut thing that I hate doing. But anyway, let's jump in, Oliver. Um, They wanted to follow up on their previous question. Here's a quick recap. Last week, they asked for my recommendation on an HDMI extractor device that could pass a 4K 120 video signal to an LG OLED while extracting audio for an older AVR that only supports up to 4K 30 or, or lower, so 1080p 60, whatever. My suggestion of using a 4K 120 splitter with downscaling was helpful, but they still have a couple of uncertainties regarding the audio side of the HDMI signal and its potential impact on the refresh rate. So they have a few follow-up questions. In order for audio and video to sync up properly, should the refresh rate on the TV side match that of the AVR side? That is an excellent question, and I don't know the answer. My assumption, which probably is wrong, but my assumption is that it's time code based. So the signal that's sent to your AVR, now you're counting seconds, one, two, three, and that's the same amount of seconds that's going on on your TV. So I think if you're using a downscaler box like that, I think that's how it would sync up audio and video, not from refresh rate or something like that. 
but I could be wrong, and I'm most likely getting that wrong. Even if my even if my answer is correct, my explanation of it's probably wrong because that's not something I've ever done a deep dive with. Um, I've definitely done tests with resolution dif differences, but never refresh rate differences. But if that was the same, if that was an issue, you know, wild speculation time, put on your tinfoil hats, everybody. If refresh rate to audio was a thing, then if I'm using a 144 hertz monitor, recording in 60 hertz, and then have a 30 hertz camera, and have a 48 uh, kilohertz audio, if I change any one of those, wouldn't everything go out of sync? And it doesn't because I change all the time and most of the time by accident. So yeah, I think you should be okay with that one. Uh, next, they had initially assumed that an HDMI audio extractor was a distinct device category. However, I was using the terms splitter and audio extractor interchangeably. Um, I was doing so because you might need the benefits of both or you might not. Those are two different categories, but I very often see audio extraction with splitters. So you might be able to get something a little bit better for your scenario. Just remember that uh, optical audio SPDIF is bandwidth limited, so you're not going to get Dolby Atmos through it. So when you see these splitters, you're going to need to look at the HDMI audio specs, not the specs of anything else on there. Um, so I don't think you should be looking for one of the other. I think you should be looking for both. Uh, so, and I know that kind of complicates things, but either one could have your correct solution. And, you know, I know you don't need any pro features, but that kind of might make things even easier because there might be something out there. Next, I mentioned the option of using ARC, the audio return channel, as a potential workaround. If they understand correctly by routing both the old HDMI sources and newer consoles through a switch onto the TV, then sending the signal back, that would eliminate the complications. Yeah, so ARC only works as well as your receiver and your TV can communicate about it. Sometimes it works flawlessly, sometimes it works, but you have to manually turn on the amp or something like that, or manually turn it off. And you know, I've, I've really seen every, sometimes it doesn't work at all. I've seen every combination, but you're essentially taking the output of your receiver. I know this sounds weird, but you're taking the output of your receiver and you're plugging it into whatever HDMI port has ARC labeled on it. And there are two advantages of this. One, if you need the on-screen display of your receiver, beautiful, switch it to that input. But also, even if you're on other TV inputs, you're still sending audio back through that HDMI channel at whatever the full bandwidth is. Now, as I say that, some TVs have issues passing certain things. There's always going to be a little gutcha here and there, but there's always going to be a gutcha if you plug directly into something. So as a general rule, if ARC is working, you could pass everything right back through it. So that might actually be your easiest solution by far, and you could just test it right now. Even if you have everything run through your walls all nice, just grab a long HDMI cable, run it across your floor just for now, just for testing, and see if that works. But that should be it. And then you could just get yourself a 4K 120 HDMI switch, only use one of your TV's HDMI inputs, the 120 hertz one, and you're done. Another one from Oliver, they want to test some more Dolby Pro Logic and Pro Logic 2 across a few different amps and decoders, and they want to run tests to see how they differ, and they were even considering making it more period correct by using older speakers. So first, do I have any suggestions on how they should approach the overall testing scenario, apart from subjective factors like sound quality and immersion, stuff like that? Yeah, I would, so subjective tests are going to be up to you, but they're still helpful. However, 
objective tests are super easy. Play those files that I included in the Dolby Pro Logic video through each one of them and see if any of them act differently. So, you know, the, the very basic one, ProLogic 1 and 2, which I know is essentially the same, but whatever. If you run it through these decoders and, you know, the left front speaker plays on all of them, then they're all working correctly. So you, from an objective approach, you just want to make sure that the decoding is accurate. And then subjectively, does one sound better than the other? Yada, yada, all that stuff. Um, as far as isolating the effects of different stuff so that you could really kind of hear if one is better or worse to you. I don't think that you should use different speakers. I think you should use the same set of speakers so that you're testing the amps. You're not testing overall scenarios. And also when you do things like test period appropriate speakers, how are those worn? So are you theoretically having a bunch of new old stock hermetically sealed speakers that have never been exposed to the elements and that way you can get a true sense of what it was like in 1989? Or are you using used speakers versus some brand new ones? Because that's going to give you wildly different results. And even a set of brand new speakers versus ones that have been broken in for a couple months versus ones that are worn out, those are going to get three completely different uh, well, I mean, when you're doing tests like this, they're all going to probably sound similar to people who aren't listening for it. But if you're in trying to do these tests, like if, hypothetically, if you bought three speakers and they were all in a hermetically sealed room, so you don't have any outside effects in that, and you used one, you know, 24-7 for a week, and then you used the, uh, another one 24-7 for two years, and then you played all three of them, they're all going to sound different, and the one that was slightly burned in, if you want to call it that, so, you know, worn in a little bit, broken in, whatever, it's probably going to sound the best. So that's going to be a huge factor. Uh, but also all speakers are different, right? You know, the best speakers of the eighties are, are also made differently with slightly different components. And it might be a sound that you prefer, but is it better? Is it worse? So my personal opinion would be to start with the objective tests, get that data down there, uh, you know, see if uh, see if you find something interesting or some weird use case, like maybe one older AVR decodes it properly. But if you add that into a newer receiver, so you take the, you know, the individual outputs and you put them to the individual analog inputs of a newer one, maybe that new receiver screws it up. I would start with those experiments and then see if you still feel like the subjective ones afterwards, because you could really go down a rabbit hole that, that doesn't matter. And I mean that with respect, right? Like you could spend spend weeks testing this stuff just to come to the conclusion that all the speakers are cool. You like them all. <laughs> so I just try to be respectful of your time. And, uh, you know, as somebody who's wasted years of their life doing tests like this, I, I feel like, um, you know, adding a silly joke to the end of this is also kind of hopefully going to save you some time. So you don't waste as much of your life as I have testing stuff that doesn't matter as much as others. Last one from Oliver. They're a big fan of the RetroFighter's wireless controllers, and they also have some other small power draw devices, such as the PS3 3D glasses and the RetroTank 5X that they're all USB charging. They plan on setting up a little charging station off to the side of their gaming room where these devices can be stored and plugged in. Obviously, these devices don't typically come bundled with any USB wall chargers, and getting about a dozen more of those adapters would be a pretty expensive proposition. So, it occurred to them that they might be able to get a power strip with all USB ports on it, and sure enough, that's absolutely a thing. 
They were just wondering if it would be safe to plug all of their smaller USB-powered controllers and peripherals into a single strip and use that for your permanent setup. So, yes, but. There's always a but when it comes to power. Theoretically, that should be more than fine. However, you're just going to want to double and triple check that the power supply that that USB hub comes with has enough amps to support the maximum amperage that you're plugging into it. As long as that's the case, you should be fine. Because essentially all you're doing is using a USB hub without connecting data, you're just connecting power. So as long as you're using a hub that has a very good power supply and that's rated for the more modern USB power draw, yeah, I think that's an absolutely great idea. Now, if you had said something like, I want to power a bunch of my guitar pedals, I want to power a bunch of my consoles, that would be a hard no for all the reasons I rant about and have always ranted about. But all you're talking about is charging components. So, and running something like the RetroTINK 5X, where I don't think you're going to see any issues with that. So my, my gut is telling me, this is not a fact, but my gut is telling me that you should be completely and totally fine. An absolute worst case scenario, if you see any interference when using your Tink, just use that on a separate power supply and charge everything else through the hub. But I really think you're going to be okay on this one. Adam Adam Ant wants to know where I got those magnifying glasses I wore on stream. They have a wiring tech they want to get a pair for as a half serious, half gag gift. These are not wiring glasses. I now need glasses to read things up close because I'm getting old, which is super depressing because I always had really good eyesight and really good hearing. And now my eyesight's starting to go. And if my hearing starts to go soon too, that means why did I spend the money on the stereo that I have? But so far, I'm, I, the only problem that I've had is uh, stuff up close I need those glasses for. However, you should be able to get over-the-counter magnifying glasses that are either uh, jeweler's lenses, the uh, the ones that flip down, the visor that flips down in front of you, uh, or ones that just look like regular glasses, but they just have magnifiers in them. But if you want something that's both a funny gag gift and something people could use, I'll give you the visor that I bought a couple years ago because it looks hilarious, but it actually works great. Cruz uses it now, so you know he wouldn't use junk. You know He says he works fine for him, and there's different lenses that you could insert, so I'm going to leave a link to that just in case. Next up, Tomas has a Dreamcast that isn't outputting the right audio channel when using the brand new Retro Gaming Cable's component cable, but both channels work fine with a previous SCART cable. So I gotta ask, is it plugged in all the way? And I am not mocking you by saying that. I'll tell you my silly story afterwards, but what I would check is I would unplug it and I would look, you know, maybe you need a magnifying glass, the light from your cell phone, whatever, but I would look in both the end of the cable and the end of your Dreamcast and make sure no pins are bent or anything like that, or there's no dust or something in there, and then plug it back in and make sure it is snug up to the Dreamcast and if that's still not working, contact Rob and he'll probably just send you another cable and ask you to send that one back. But the reason I'm asking this is because years ago, I got a Behar Brothers box and I sent Yossi an email saying this thing doesn't work right. And he said, can you snap a picture of the connection? So I did. And he, he put, like added a little arrow to the picture and he said, believe it or not, it, it's not in all the way. Can you try reseeding it? And in my head, I'm going... Of course it's in all the way. That's a stupid thing to say. What the hell? I plug in cables all the time. I know what I'm doing. Luckily, I didn't respond yet, but I unplugged it and I plugged it back in. And sure enough, there was like a little, you know, almost like a millimeter more of give in there when I plugged it back in because I guess the connector just hadn't fully broken in yet. 
And then everything worked. So of course I immediately responded to Yossi and said, I'm a moron. Sorry. Thanks for being patient and all that. But I told you that story both to make fun of myself, but also to tell you, I'm not making fun of you. It is just a thing with the Dreamcast, the way the connectors are and the way the receptacle is on the Dreamcast before the connector really has a chance to break itself in it's going to be snug and you might have to force it a little tiny bit. So that could be a very reasonable explanation as to why your older cable works fine and this one doesn't, or it could just be defective. So try that first, but then if not, have that thing RMA'd and uh, swap it out for a fixed one. Next up, Tony Escobar tried my suggestion of just swapping out the cable in order to fix the flickering on their mister when connected via 1536p and it didn't work. So the next thing that you're going to try doing is swapping out the DE10 itself. So sorry that you're having trouble with this. It stinks. Um, please keep us updated because if this is something that's related to DE10s, it wouldn't be common, but it would be nice to know. So that way, through all of us in the circles that we hang out in, if somebody describes a weird flickering issue, then we might be able to say, oh, it could be the DE10 itself. Do you have another mister? Do you, can you borrow a friend's mister, etc.? cetera? Uh, so yeah. You know, that's something that's worth trying. Um, if you end up buying another DE10 and not needing it, let me know. I could always, there's always a developer I know that needs one for a fair price, but uh, so that way you won't lose any money out of it. But yeah, it's weird. Please keep us updated. I kind of want to know what the answer is. Retro Sean recently saw a video that suggested that you turn on the soap opera effect on your OLED TV in order to overcome 30 frames per second on the new Zelda game. So, I have some thoughts on this one. First of all, latency is obviously the first thing that I would worry about. Can you turn on this mode while retaining game mode? Some TVs won't let you access these modes because they would add too much latency. And even if you could, is it adding a frame of lag? Is it adding a ton of lag? Because this is a TV-focused feature. It's meant for TV signals and stuff and, and movies and things like that, not video games. So if it added 20 frames of lag, that's totally fine because it's not supposed to be used with video games. I haven't, I always turn that stuff off. So maybe if you have a time sleuth, you could check it. Uh, maybe it'll, it'll, you know, give a, a fake effect that is pleasing in certain scenes. And it, even if it does add a ton of lag, if you like the way this looks, watch all the cutscenes with it, or just when you're wandering around and then whenever there's action, you know, flip it back into game mode. But I don't, I, I can't understand how this would produce a good effect because you are not going to change the frame rate of a game. It's still going to react and feel like 30 frames per second. They, it's possible there could be some frame blending or something going on, but that could actually be a detriment to video games and would most certainly add a whole bunch of latency. Because it's important to remember that these modes that TV companies have added... There are really two main reasons that they came up with them. First of all, they want you to walk into a big box store and say, ooh, that one's the shiniest, so that you would buy it. And second of all, most people who buy these things without any research will, are probably the type of person to go home and hook them up to their 25-year-old cable box and wonder why it doesn't look good. And in those scenarios, those filters actually do an excellent job. No shade whatsoever. And some companies have even evolved that so that 24 frame per second is a little bit smoother. And if you're running a 120 hertz TV, that's actually a good thing because they don't have to use 3-2 pull down or smoothing. They could actually just do it right. So it's not 
all BS, but it certainly was not designed for video games at all in most cases. And if they are and I'm missing something, please let me know. Now, I did see this video, and I skipped right by it because, and I, you know, maybe this is me just getting a little sour after seeing so much crap going down over the years, but when you see something like that, you have to understand that there's two scenarios. The very plausible scenario is that this video talks similar to what I did about it and has all of these great facts and is, you know, is an informative video with a really clickbaity title because unfortunately you can't get clicks without a clickbaity title. It's just kind of the way it is these days. So, uh, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game type of thing. However, and I know I shouldn't say this at all, a better person would keep their mouth shut, but you got to be, you got to understand that YouTube is filled with a bunch of Corlickian reviewers that think because they powered something on and it works, they're now an expert at it. So you need to take a lot of this stuff with a grain of salt. And once again, I haven't seen the video. So if you're a fan of this person, if the person's got a good channel, don't come trolling. I'm just talking generally about this stuff. But that was a super clickbaity title and a huge turnoff. So I, I just walked right by it and didn't, you know, you know, metaphorically just passed right by and didn't even stop to click on it. But my gut's telling me it's not going to do anything you'd actually want to have on while gaming. But I would love to be wrong. I would love to find out that this person really discovered a secret combination of frame blending that adds zero lag and gives you the perception of a higher frame rate even though it stays at 30. But if that existed, why wouldn't LG have put that at the forefront of their marketing and made this the world's greatest gaming TV? So, I, I, I don't know, but... Yeah, my gut's telling me this is just another, just somebody turning on a setting and talking about it without knowing what they're talking about. But I hope I'm wrong. I don't know the person who did it. I don't know the channel, person, people, whoever's behind it. I'm just speculating uh, based on many years of being burned with stuff like this and also many years of people hardcore trolling like, you know, uh, why would you ever say anybody needs a scaler? All you need to do is just, you know, set your TV to, to motion smoothing, and that's the same thing. Like, you're an idiot. You're a liar. Like, I, that's I get that all day long, every day. So if you're wondering why I'm a little bit bitter towards idiot YouTubers, that's why. But once again, I don't know this person. Maybe they're awesome. Yeah, so watch it for yourself if you want to, but I'm not... I'm not putting a link to that unless unless a bunch of commenters say, no, it's a good video. It's informative. It's honest, but I'm definitely not promoting clickbait unless I know it's actually good. And lastly, Steve Wells just wanted to chime in about a few different things. First, there are several different variants of the iPad LCD control boards with wildly different support. So, Tony, your problem of not supporting or getting flicker at 1536p could be related to that. So you could definitely try any other monitor that could support it. Um, capture Some capture cards support it. Some just gaming monitors like this one support it. So that's definitely something that might be the issue as well. Um, so I, I do, you know, I do appreciate how hard it is to get consistency with this stuff. Greg certainly did. Uh, I mean, I've been talking to Greg about this since he first came up with the idea. And he's been working really hard to get good consistent boards but if you've done it yourself if you bought kits from aliexpress and you know you might get a good one you might not it's just it's, it's a giant pain to get that stuff right so thanks for chiming in on that steve and tony i hope the issue isn't the monitor because then you would have unfortunately wasted some money on a new de10 but i'll still buy it off you if, if you did next regarding the david griffith's xbox conundrum um it looks like uh, Steve also has this issue and solved it by buying another Xbox. 
They have one with the Xbox HD Plus mod in it, and then they have another one that they could run composite out for watching old 80s TV shows on their PVM, or they also have a Chimeric HDMI cable, which they could use if they need to just have an easier solution. And this respectfully goes back to my, if you have the extra cash and you really love this stuff, then absolutely, that's an awesome option. I just, in these answers, and especially anything on the website, I always try to present everything as, here's how you could do this the cheapest possible way that doesn't suck. And, oh, also, I really love the super crazy ways too. But I, I want to always balance that because I just, I get bombarded with people that are like, you know, oh, you're just trying to sell your cables, which is funny. I don't sell cables. I've never sold cables, but it's just so many people are like, you're lying about this stuff to sell cables. All you have to do is plug this into that. And it's like, yeah, I know. And I've told you that every time people ask. So I like both. There's nothing wrong with with enjoying and appreciating two ways to solve the same problem. So, um, you know, it, if buying another Xbox is what works for you, and now you have a spare, now you have your backup, maybe you have two models, one is an original cool-looking case, and the other one's just the, the, base, or the, the basic case everybody else got, there's so many reasons you might want to, or you might want to just buy one adapter and be done with it. So I'll stop ranting. I just, I like all options, and I just want to make sure that I always try to evenly say the answers to both so we'll see i don't know maybe my cold is still getting to me and i'm just being grumpy but hopefully that came out po positive steve because i appreciate your uh, your responses and I, I agree with both well that's it for this time my throat's still killing me so uh if i'm if i sounded grumpy in any of that that's, that's the only reason why um i even had to stop halfway through a couple of those answers just to have a cough drop and you know take a couple sips of my gatorade and just kind of kind of chill out. So I, I always love doing these. Um, and I didn't want to delay it another week. I'm having a good time doing it, but, uh, you know, you can't help being grumpy when you're sick. So hopefully I didn't piss anybody off too much. Uh, you know, you know, you never know with me. I never know what emails I'm going to wake up to the next morning. However, uh, as usual, I had a great time doing it. Thank you for everybody who participated. And if you want to participate in these, ask any question you'd like, wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. The way the services work, I can't figure out what's an older question on a newer post. Plus, I really like just answering them in real time like I do here, just kind of like a chill conversation between people. So anyway, thank you all very much, and I will see you next week.